to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Many of you may have heard about the new Trump budget proposal, which makes some pretty significant changes to SNAP, or the food stamp program that exists in the United States. Now, we often talk about food stamps as a policy that we would like to see some changes to as basic income advocates because we feel like the restrictions that exist on food stamps may be preventing people from making the choices they actually most need in different situations. But in this case, the situation may not be quite so simple, and we may want to reconsider our ideas about whether we should be opposing or actually defending the SNAP program. So here to help us think through this is Jess Bartholo. She's the policy advocate at the Western Center on Law and Poverty and chairperson of the California Asset Building Coalition. Welcome, Jess. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. So to start off, can you just tell us about SNAP and what impact the program has for people in poverty? Sure. SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, is one of the largest anti-poverty programs in the country. It serves over 40 million Americans and here in California, about 4 million Californians on any given month. Uh, throughout the year, it actually serves about 5.8 million Californians. And it is the most effective program that we have to fight hunger. What it does, is for those of people who aren't aware of how it works, is it distributes a food benefit. The, Cal or the SNAP program distributes a food benefit through an electronic benefit transfer program um, where recipients of the benefit get a card and that card can be used at any approved grocery facility and sometimes restaurant uh, for people who are elderly, homeless, or disabled to purchase food. And it's pretty simple. Every month they get the benefits loaded onto their card and they can use that card up to the benefits that they receive. The benefits aren't a lot of money, uh, but they do represent a significant portion of the food budget of families that receive SNAP. And can you give us a ballpark about how much would a, a typical family receive? Um, yeah, so for a family, uh, well, for an individual, the current benefit level is $194 a month. It represents less than $2 per meal per person. Now, the Trump budget has proposed significant changes to the program. First, it would cut funding for the program to the tune of around $20 billion a year. And second, it would convert half of the benefits for most recipients into a so-called harvest box with pre-selected non-perishable food items that it sends to people. What's your take on these changes? Well, first and foremost, it's a really insulting proposal, right? We already know that the benefits that people receive through SNAP aren't sufficient and that a significant portion of SNAP recipients at the end of the month go to a food pantry or commodity food site to get a box of food. So this proposal in essence uh, represents a real misunderstanding of the program and what it does. It would replace benefits that people could spend at the grocery store on fresh produce, on dairy, on, um, on items they can't get in a food box with items they can get and some of them already do get in a food box. Some people have, have, have suggested that this would be a real diversion from American politics. Um, and we were reminded just this weekend by a Native American activist who said, no, this is exactly what we have on uh, Native American land. We actually aren't able to get food benefits through SNAP, and instead we're given a box of commodity food. Now, we already know what the impact of those policy decisions have been in America. Uh, Native American communities are the hungriest 
in the country, and they also suffer from the most, uh, the, the highest rates of diet-related disease. So if we want to know what a Harvest Food Box program would look like, we need not look much further than our Native American communities. I thought that was a really important reminder, and, um, and especially because we forget that the SNAP program doesn't reach everybody already. Um, and, and that's my second point, which is any proposal that's coming out of the Trump administration, as insulting as the policy is itself, the cuts are what we need to pay attention to. As you mentioned, this is, uh, represents a significant cut in the program. This is a program that already doesn't serve all of those in America who are experiencing hunger or in danger of going hunger. It's going the wrong way. And uh, this should be the message loud and clear. Whether or not Congress adopts the Harvest Food Box proposal, they will be eyeing the cuts, either by adopting parts of that proposal or some other proposal. Either way, if the program is undermined by cutting the funding, it's not gonna be serving the people it serves today and isn't gonna be addressing the already existent hunger in America. So thinking about that comparison to Native American communities, can you give us some insight into why that's such a failure? Yes, there are, there are many reasons why a Harvest Food Box program wouldn't work. Again, the first and foremost is that it does so in a context of cutting assistance to the program. Secondly, the administration has proposed that if they adopt the Harvest Box program, they'll be gaining efficiencies in fighting hunger by being able to purchase at uh, lower rates because they'll be purchasing in bulk and then distributing the food uh, to people who would otherwise have to pay full price at the market. The reason this doesn't work is because at least all of the savings that they would get perhaps by purchasing in bulk, they would lose through distribution. You'd have to set up a whole completely different set of distribution. Today, the SNAP program, the way it works is it, it works hand in hand with the grocery industry so that um, people can use their benefit card in the places where they live and supporting jobs and economy in the places where they live. In fact, uh, every dollar distributed through the SNAP program results in $1.74 in economic activity and for every billion dollars that we distribute in SNAP, we create thousands of jobs. In California, it's over 13,000 jobs per billion, and that's because our economy is so reliant on the food industry. In, in economies that have less food industry, the, the boost to the jobs are smaller, but they're still quite significant. So we would, we would lose jobs in the grocery industry, in the food packing industry, and instead we'd gain jobs in volunteer food distributors. This actually is a lose-lose proposition. Uh, Low-income people would have fewer choices when it comes to their food and their home dinner table, and the economy would have fewer jobs in the food industry. These jobs in, in general tend to be jobs that lead towards middle class and higher incomes as well. The other reason that the food box programs don't work is because they remove choice from low-income families. And one of the great pieces of research that has come out this decade has been to, to better understand the relationship between choice and 
diet-related disease. And what these researchers have found is that regardless of income, when somebody has a lack of choice, their cortisol levels go up, their stress indicators go up. For every choice that somebody has removed from them, whether it's at work or at home or um, you know, meeting their own basic needs, the cortisol level increases, and it's that cortisol level that relates directly to a diet-related disease, um, specifically to, to diabetes, but also to high blood pressure and other diet-related diseases. So if we remove choice in the food budgets of low-income people, we will see an increase in diet-related diseases and probably then a cost related to, to healthcare, but also to their humanity because we have removed choice from them. Finally, people who are low-income, they have very precarious health situations. They are living um, shorter lives. Their lives are more likely to be impaired by disability and disease. And many of them are unable to eat the kinds of foods that would come in a food box, either because of that or because they have food sensitivities that are culturally um, more common. So for example, if the government distributes cheese in a box, there are many Americans that aren't going to be able to eat the cheese. And that would be a, not an efficiency, but a waste. Uh, the same with peanut butter or bread. These are the kinds of things that my family received in a food box when we were kids. And we can expect that they'd come around again, right? Whether it's uh, corn or dairy products or, you know, certain kinds of wheat, even if we decide what kinds of canned vegetables people are going to eat, there will be a portion of the population that will be unable to eat those foods and therefore the distribution will be wasteful, not efficient. So on a very similar note, SNAP is different from the universal basic income in that it's, it's both means tested and the funds have restrictions on them, namely for purchasing food items. So tell us more, I think you just gave some great reasons, but why should basic income advocates be defending SNAP in this situation? I think there are three reasons why we would expect basic income advocates to support SNAP and join us in the fight to protect SNAP in the coming weeks and months of this administration. First, this model of wealth redistribution using uh, an electronic payment card so that people can spend the money in their own economies works. It's a long-standing program. Uh, it has uh, measurable outcomes. We also, uh, because of some unfortunate decisions uh, over the past several years, which have allowed the program benefits to erode, um, we've been able to see uh, what even small changes can make in the benefit level. Um, so, for example, during the recession, President Obama and Congress passed the um, American Recovery Act. And in that act, they increased the benefit by approximately $28 for a family of four. And researchers quickly jumped in to see what difference that little in increase in benefit level could make in um, the purchasing power and the rate of hunger among the impacted families. And what they found was that it makes a significant impact. Recent research coming out of really longitudinal data shows that uh, they were able to track the impact on communities when SNAP was implemented because it wasn't implemented evenly across the United States, they could see a difference when the program was implemented. And they're now academically 
able to show that with statistically significant information that um, in the communities that had access to SNAP, the very longitudinal um, outcomes were significantly different. They have uh, better graduation rates, lower rates of disease, better maternal outcomes for the next generation of children. You don't have a program in America that has been so well studied, which is so regionally based as the SNAP program. And it provides, I think, UBI advocates a model for the things you might want to look at to research when we do get UBI in place, the ways to distribute it, the arguments to make for why redistribution in a very local way is beneficial to not just the recipients themselves, but to their economies. Uh, there are lots of lessons learned about the things that do work about SNAP that I would think that the things that are troubling to UBI recipients about SNAP should be minimized. That's the reason number one. SNAP is a program that works to redistribute money into the hands of the local economy and um, and so UBI recipients or UBI advocates should stand with us for that reason. The second reason is because the fight in America this week, this month, this year to protect the SNAP program, to protect both its structure and its benefit level is one that will be taken up by anti-poverty advocates across the country. This will be unifying. We will come together in ways to protect this program that we've never seen before. If UBI advocates are not at that table, people will remember that. This is something that we're coming together with. And, and I know that there are people who will say UBI is not necessarily about ending poverty. There'll be critics of the UBI movement who will say that the UBI advocates don't care about low-income people. One way to prove them wrong is to join us at the table to save SNAP. Third, it's the right thing to do. You know, at the very kind of heart of the UBI movement is to preserve America as a place where everybody has opportunity. And that, I do believe that the UBI community as a whole believes in that, that America is a place where opportunity should be preserved for everybody, and that that's what we're trying to do by creating UBI. That opportunity is undermined every day for every child that goes hungry. When a child goes hungry, their brains are reconstituted in a way that makes it very difficult for them to exit poverty. The children and young adults that you're trying to advocate for by creating a UBI system are not going to benefit fully from that system if they're hungry today as children, if their mothers are hungry while they're in vitro. These impacts of hunger will be prolonged and the benefits of UBI will be undermined in the future if we don't preserve the health, mental health, and opportunity of the children today. And to do that, we have to save the SNAP program. Yeah, I think that finding around how what $28 a month can do for families is really striking. Is I think a lot of UBI advocates will say, well, you know, it doesn't really count until you get up to something like $1,000 a month when you know, $50 a month is really transformative for, for so many people. Uh, so what can people do to, to protest these cuts or, or to make a difference here? I think that there are a number of things that I would advise people to do. If you're with an organization and you can sign up as an organization with the national effort, you can do, th do so through the Coalition on Human Needs. You can sign up to get their action alerts, join their calls, 
um, sign organizational support letters, etc. You can also follow the Food Research and Action Center and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, who've been um, posting regularly about the impact of these proposals and how to get involved at kind of the organizational level. For individuals, there is the growing Poor People's Movement campaign where individuals can learn about uh, very regional and, and local direct action as well as meetings and um, individual action that can be taken. And uh, they are taking on this issue as, as well as other issues. And so that's the Poor People's Campaign. The thing I like about that, obviously, it's, it harkens on um, Martin Luther King and the movement he started over 50 years ago to launch the Poor People's Campaign. So people in the movement and in the campaign come back to that, to his words. And um, as we all know, he was an advocate for universal basic income. And so it, it might be a, a, a great place for us to come together. For people who don't feel like maybe they fit into a religious movement, the, the movement itself, uh, if, if you join and you um, are watching the information coming out, there certainly are religious calls to action, but there are also calls to action that are appropriate for non-religious people as well. So we do encourage people to do that. So Poor People's Campaign, and would just say repeat the other two organizations you listed? Sure, the Food Research and Action Center, uh, based out of D.C., the Coalition on Human Needs, and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And on that note around the Poor People's Campaign and that being one place where you actually do see basic income efforts and defense of SNAP coming together, longer term, how do you see this all connecting? What does ideally that future path look like? where we are looking at basic income and looking at how we defend and support the other programs that we have. That's a really great question, Jim. And um, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you to you and to the work you are doing to bring together these conversations. I don't think we get anywhere unless we're all at the table together. Uh, for people who represent the low-income communities in California and in the U.S., as you see, these programs are under attack. So a vision for the future that doesn't include uh, defense of these programs until they're no longer needed is just kind of not, not something we can participate in. But I think if you talk to any SNAP advocate, we all know that people don't grow up thinking, gee, I wish I were on SNAP. You know, as I heard one person explain, she said, I never actually felt poorer than when I was on SNAP, right? This is not a future that we want to have more people on SNAP. The future is that we want SNAP to not be necessary. And that's the place where we can all agree. Um, and so if we can defend the programs to the point at which we don't need them anymore um, together, then I think that's the vision I see us working towards. You know, if the UBI community can come to the basic needs community and safety net community to help defend those programs and then help invite people advocating and working and toiling away in that world, invite them to see a world in which we don't need these programs, I do think we'll find a sweet spot where we can be working together more and better. All right. I'd love to see that. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I would just say thank you again for having this conversation and... Um, and I look forward to seeing all the UBI advocates who tend to be you know, very thoughtful and creative coming to work with us to defend the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program.
That was Jess Barthelow, policy advocate at the Western Center on Law and Poverty and chairperson of the California Asset Building Coalition. You know, so often when we talk about basic income, we see it as this pretty distant policy and, and we think about what actually may be stepping stones to move towards that. But it's a really important point that Jess made that if we're serious about what basic income is going to accomplish being our priority, if we really want to lift people up, it can't just be about that far away view of where we're going. We need to actively be fighting to defend what we have today that isn't perfect and, and hopefully at some point may not be necessary, but is doing really, really important work as far as lifting people up and, and helping to, to give them some push out of poverty. Right. There's a freedom to feeling like we're not politically all that close to a basic income, at least in the U.S., and it lets you kind of dream up what is the most ideal scenario. But we're probably not going to get our most ideal scenario. And obviously, there are a lot of different ideal scenarios out there. But we do have programs right now that are doing a lot of good work to fight poverty. And a lot of that goes pretty under the radar. And so, yeah, it, it is really important that if we're serious about not just the ultimate vision of basic income, but the effects that we want to see, especially for me in terms of fighting poverty, that we're at the table for things like defending the SNAP program. And this is also just such a textbook case of advocating a far more paternalistic approach right. to accomplishing something. So even if you recognize that th there are things we could do that could improve SNAP today, this is so clearly going in the wrong direction that we should be crystal clear that if, if we support the idea of, of giving people agency with their benefits, what's being proposed now is wrong, and we should be standing up for that. I think it's, it's worth pointing out that Jess, who's someone who is so far into the world of fighting poverty, wants to see a world where we don't have, where we don't need programs like SNAP. So it's not just about defending this one thing in perpetuity it is a stepping stone toward things like basic income where we don't have the current conditions we have now, but we do have the current conditions we have now. Right. And, and, that's, and, and SNAP is something that's already in place and does provide a fair amount of freedom for something that everyone needs. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davison. If you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. And please do tell your friends who you think might be interested about this podcast. We are always looking to reach new people. We'll talk to you next time.